Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we have gathered together. We have sung praises to you. Many of us maybe know why we're here. There might be some who do not even know why they're here. But we're here. So God, I pray you would speak to us in clear ways. Use the words you want, not the words I want. And if the words I'm using are the wrong ones, you change them for our hearts. We love you. In your name, amen. Last week, we ended the conversation around talking about Naaman being healed and how he was healed and he makes this declaration, now I know there is one God on all the earth, which was a huge proclamation because he was from another place working for a man who was actually named after another god that they worshipped. He was concerned about going back home, remember? But the prophet says, go in peace. Go break the chaos. The Lord is with you wherever you go. And the ending was the challenge for us to carry his name well. Now that idea of carrying his name well may mean different things to different people. For some it might be like, I'm going to be super religious this week. For some, it's like, I'm going to try to be perfect. For some, it's like, I don't even know what that means. We're going to connect that to what I think a big part of it is. And carrying his name well is to bring mercy to those who obviously need it. And to bring mercy to those who you never even thought of giving it to. We're going to be here and then we're going to end up right there. On the front end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to a lot of people. He's speaking to a group of people and really giving his view on a lot of things, which was super common for rabbis to do. At the, towards the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, he references this thing that's become very common to us. In Matthew 5, it's... Um, it's noted in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, he says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are also the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Which starts to give us an idea. What does it mean to carry his name well? Carry this light in such a way that people see how wonderful you are. No. They see how wonderful God is through you. But how do we do that. And how do we be light in darkness? Because in many ways, a gathering at church is like being a lamp in a lamp store. <laughs> Have you ever been to a lamp store? Years ago, we were looking for new lights for our kitchen because when my wife looked at them, she's like, those are ugly. I looked at them as functional. Right? It had like this big dome thing on it. One day the dome out of the blue fell, shattered all over the, the floor. And now I'm like, oh, it's retro. Because you just see this light bulb. <laughs> we went to Lamps Plus to pick out new lights. Lamps Plus had thousands of lights in there. 
right? All out of context. And I walked in and it was so overwhelming with lights, it actually paralyzed my decision. I'm like, I need to go where there's less. And yet what's true about lights is if you're in a new hotel room and you have to go up in the middle of the night to find the light switch, you're begging and wishing it was a lot easier than it currently is. And if you gather here this morning and you find yourself going consistently to dark places, you're like, I wish there was more light with me. I gather on Sundays in a light store, it sure would be great to take some of those lights where I'm going. Because the, also the cynicism that can start to be in our heart is that church is a waste because people aren't going with me. And that's the enemy saying that. So as we engage in this, how can we be light together in dark places? After a long day of ministry, people are drawn to Jesus' teaching and he's talking about things in ways they've never heard. In fact, it was so crowded at this one place, they got into a boat and they just went a little bit away from shore and he spoke from a boat. Now those who not know much more than I do said he was actually using the boat and the, the sound waves off the water to magnify what he was saying. Awesome. I just think he got in a boat because there was a lot of people around him and he spoke from a boat. The crowd gathered. It says they gathered from near and far because there was a light unlike they'd ever seen before. At the end of the day, though, he didn't get out of the boat. He said to his disciples, let's bring this light to another place. Mark 4.35, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. So he's like, let's go. That must have been really kind of disorienting for the people. They heard this amazing day of teaching, and they're hoping for like a meet and greet or something, right? You know, doesn't the pastor shake hands on the way out? Like how could, He just turns around and they sail away. And then the author, like, that's like a dramatic mic drop, right? But he didn't drop the mic because there was no mics. He just sailed away. And then there was other boats with him because they're like, I'm not in the boat, but if I can be near the boat, that's pretty cool. They're in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is known as having these microclimates, which we in San Francisco are very well aware of, that it can be beautiful one day, and then two hours later it's not, or some other place. The Sea of Galilee was known for storms to come up at an amazing, quick fashion. They say it has to do with really large mountains surrounding the lake with plains and just pressure systems, and once again, way outside my pay scale, Storms come fast. So what was about to happen was common, and yet it took them off guard. In fact, what happened is why some people believe the disciples weren't really as old as we might think they were. They weren't that experienced in the boat. In fact, there's this one guy who I believe, he, he says, I think these disciples were like late in their teens, they failed discipleship school from everybody else. Jesus chose them as the B group. Like, they didn't choose you. I'm choosing you. Let's go for a sale. So if you imagine, and this isn't really that important. It's just fun to imagine. 
that there's these 17, 18-year-olds in this boat with Jesus, this story just makes more sense. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Some people are like, how could Jesus sleep? The guy was tired. <laughs> Deep. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet. Be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Because of these known microclimates, there might have been like, I told you this was going to happen. We shouldn't be sailing at nighttime. It's dark. And I'm wondering about the boats that were also went with him, like near him, what they were observing at the same time and experiencing. They had seen his power already. And because it was recorded this way, they've also noticed that earlier in Mark, as Mark recorded, he uses the same words that he used to cast out an evil spirit that he did to calm the waters. The root word means be quiet. Peace should be breaking the chaos, not chaos breaking the peace. For some reason in their minds, it was like, that's legit that he casts out demons. But oh my gosh, the weather responds to him as well. That also gives you a mindset of what the, how they saw the weather at this time. The thing that cannot be controlled. The thing that is bigger than all of us. Because we don't know where it's coming from. And we don't know where it's going. What was he doing? He's bringing, bringing peace into the situation. It must have been really disorienting though, right? Like, hey, we've seen him do these amazing things. As long as we have him in the boat, we're good. Like, even in transition, we're good. And what Jesus is saying is, you're good despite the things you experience. Because I am with you. Whose idea was it to cross the lake? It's Jesus's. Who knew, most likely, what was going to happen? Jesus. Who knew who was waiting for him on the other side? Jesus. You know who the only one who wasn't nervous about this whole journey? Jesus. Could it be that when he's leading you somewhere or placing something on your heart and things aren't going like you thought, it was his idea to lead you through that? Because so often we say, God, I thought you told me to do this, but in my deduction, it must not be true because the storms are raging. And he's like, I did tell you 
And the journey to get to where I want you to be is right through this storm. Because you'll see that my present doesn't always take away the discomfort. My presence brings you to the place I want you to be eventually. And just think who you will be once that happens. Last week we talked about how the story of location, that Jesus isn't, that God's just not worshipped in one place. But in all places. But it starts with this orientation of the heart. But Jesus has a plan to go across the lake to another story that's so easily for us is to read through really flat. But I want to engage your mind and your heart around it. It's common for us in 2019 to read the Bible in our own context. If we do so, this story, we miss how eerie this experience actually may have been. I'm speculating a bit, but I'm also using the timeline of what they were doing. He had preached all day. It was evening. They shoved out onto the boat. They had gone through the storm. There was a rebuking of waves. It was a five-mile journey from where they were to where they were going to be. They arrived on the beach, most likely in the middle of the night or the early, early morning. You're like, but Dale, I've seen the movie about Jesus. It was day. That's just because the lighting was better for the cameras. <laughs> Coming out of these shadows, if you can picture them, and the darkness, and these tombs, in this rocky area, were the voices of evil, eeriness. It's kind of like if you visited a graveyard at night by yourself and it was foggy and you heard voices coming out of the graves. Are we there yet? You're a nine-year-old boy telling ghost stories to your friends. That's what this is. It's also why maybe this is why we hear nothing of the disciples in this whole story because they may have just stayed in the boat. But ultimately, this isn't a story just about demons. It's about mercy. Because mercy isn't just for those who obviously need it. It's for those we can never imagine receiving it. What can Jesus do in the life of a man or a woman? What can he do in the life of of that person you've thought this person would never see Jesus for who he is. Jesus had a plan. And it wasn't just for this man. He's thinking, how can I reach this group of cities known as the Decapolis that are so Greek infested and this, the, these ten major cities their hearts are so towards the gods that do not exist. Their hearts are so far from Jesus. But Jesus has a plan not just to reach a man, but to launch a revolution to a place that's never heard through mercy. We'll go on. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. 
This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been often chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. So much here. Jesus starts with what he normally does. Come out of him, you impure spirit. It did not come out at that time. This man comes, he bows down to Jesus. It implies in the narrative, might be him speaking and the demon speaking at the same time. And they saw Jesus as a threat and they saw Jesus as a torturer. Now, pretty clear the world may not say Jesus is a torturer. They kind of go to his followers as the torturers maybe. But even those who resist Jesus, they say, I do not want to change because that makes me look a certain way. But the demon didn't come out, so Jesus kind of raises the level of authority and says, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? Because it's authority in like my name, where there's power in your name, and it's also intimacy. I want to know who I'm talking to. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. This is probably a longer span of time than this quick conversation. The implication of again and again is this is an ongoing conversation. Maybe it's getting lighter now. Morning is starting to hit. Legion, for we are many. Legion is uh, a Roman army of about 6,000 men. It could have just been, I'm legion. doesn't mean there's literally 6,000 demons. There could have been, but there are many. It could also be legion because, like, it has outward intimidation. When the legion showed up in these poor towns, it was obvious we are asserting ourselves. It could also be how the man felt. Maybe he'd actually seen real legions cause havoc in his hometown and the torture that they may have done to people, that that's what he was declaring for himself is that I am a man tortured as if, as if a community being tortured by a legion. Because even if we're not filled with these kinds of impure spirits, those are the lines we hear so often. I either want to assert myself over you or I want to beat myself up. I want to come across with power through my knowledge, through my money, through what I know, or simply by dismissing your point of view or I want to assume that I should have no part in the conversation at all. And in both ways, we all come to Jesus that way. We come to him and say, what can you do for me? Why do you want to ruin my life? How much do I have to give up of what I enjoy to be with you? Or, I am so far away from you, 
I mean, there's like the least of the least. And then there's those people in your head like, I can't even imagine him like Jesus. And then there's this dude, right? I mean, he's like extreme, living in the tombs, breaking chains, screaming night and day. Nobody can contain him. He's so overwhelmed by all of this. But Jesus saw that there was only one way to cure this man. And that was to give him the unanswerable demonstration that the demons had gone out of him, at least unanswerable as his own mind was concerned. Because even today, you may be like, I'm disregarding this story. I don't believe in demons. But for you, I would say, would you engage at minimum that this guy was severely mentally ill and he needed to see an unanswerable truth that he had been freed from this? Jesus was there to heal the man. It wasn't just about the demons. We'll continue on. Verse 11. A large group of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus. Once again, there's this begging. Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. Now there's a lot of testifying going on. These guys are like, I'm going to go testify on Jesus, for Jesus, but I'm going to go tell them about the pigs running into the sea. There are those who maybe even this room are like, what about the pigs? I'll let you have your own conversations about the pigs. I like pigs, in case you're wondering. But Jesus is giving an unanswerable truth to this man. He's giving him something so tangible that this man goes, I know I'm healed. This wasn't a trick. But the testimony that these people who saw the pigs, the herdsmen into the town, it's going to run out of gas because at some point, everyone has have heard about the pigs. This was the very proof that the man needed. This was almost the only thing on earth that could have convinced him that he was cured. Jesus, like a wise leader who understood so kindly and sympathetically the psychology of a mind diseased, used the event to help the man climb back to sanity. And this disordered mind was restored to peace. The chaos inwardly and outwardly had been broken. This wasn't just off the boat, boom. This was an engagement with a man who his town had rejected, who were afraid of for very viable and important reasons. Jesus starts with the heart of the matter and heals a man. And not just so he thinks he's better, but gives him the undeniable truth. It's the same phrase as Naaman who last week was healed and says, Now I know there's only one God. This question begs for all of us. Have you seen God move in you? If you haven't, I'm guessing... You're more like the boats that sailed near Jesus just to be around him. 
But you're like, I haven't had demons in me. I haven't had leprosy. Those seem to be two extreme events. But have you seen him move in your attitude? Have you seen him move in where you were going and now what you value? Have you seen him move in how you approach those who hurt you? Because there should be some undeniable, unanswerable things in your life that came as a result of the Spirit being in you. It is impossible for your life not to change when you have the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead in you. There should be something. And it starts maybe by saying yes. Yes to what? Verse 15, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Because life change freaks people out sometimes. I mean, here was a man so uncontrolled, and what we're afraid of was that he was now had clothes on. Oh, we're used to seeing you naked. You have clothes on. This is freaking me out. <laughs> You're in your right mind. Oh, my goodness. Those who had seen it told the people what happened to the demon-possessed man, and they told them about the pigs as well because they couldn't get past it. Then the people who began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. It's amazing what we react to. And here was a group of people saying, Jesus, please leave us alone. Now, if you take this out rationally, here is a guy who has regained sanity, he's well-clothed, and he's a calm. Oh, Jesus, leave us. But Jesus has that same thing for each of us. I don't know the amount of time when the people left to get all the, the people who owned the pigs in the town, they came back, but I'm envisioning this conversation with Jesus with a man. This man is most likely someone who's never really had someone talk to him, hug him, talk to him like a human. I don't know where they got these clothes from. Maybe the disciples who are still hanging out in the boat Jesus is like, hey, everybody give me a little bit of what you have. We're going to take what we have and clothe this man. And now they're starting to clothe him. Maybe Jesus is sitting next to him with his arm around him and just saying, how you doing? And the guy's probably just doing a lot of cleansing breaths. Like, bro, I don't know what just happened. But I'm sure glad it did. Because when we feel the tormenting of guilt and shame or anxiety, and then we feel the peace, it could also be the, 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 the overwhelming of like, what if I get found out? Or am I enough? The pain of comparison, all those things that we experience today. And Jesus is like, how are you doing? That stretch of time must have been amazing for that man to experience for Jesus to do and for his disciples to see that this man is not just about casting out demons and teaching well. This man is about giving mercy to the least of these.
to the person we thought would never respond. For sure, it had been a long time since this man felt love. And for sure, Jesus said, let's go through the storm because mercy can start a revolution. The people begged for Jesus to leave because it was disturbing them. It was bothering them. This is not how we think, what we do. We had our lives intact and ready to roll. When Jesus does something so unexpected, he says yes to the crowd and no to the man. The crowd's begging him to leave. The man's begging him to go with them. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the, wa- getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. What? He's like, Jesus, let me go with you. Like, can you imagine the power of this testimony? Like, he would have brought Jesus skyrocketed up. Like, this is legit. The other disciples would have been like, that would have been great, right? Who is this guy? Like, wait, what? You were what? Now you're what? Let me go with you. Because that's what we're drawn to do. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be with Jesus. In case you're interpreting that. But he says, Jesus said, did not let him go. But he said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. The Decapolis, ten cities, all Greek cities, drawn together to protect themselves from all outside forces. Incredibly Greek in their, in their religion and Greek in their thought and their philosophy. This is actually the launching of Christianity outside of Judaism. We look at it as Apostle Paul. This is the first one we see to go, you take what I'm saying to you and bring it someplace they need I don't need another light in the light store in my boat. I need this light to go to the darkness. And what does he supposed to talk about? Mercy. Go talk about the mercy the Lord has done for you. Go back to the people who you have hurt. Go back to the people who thought you were insane. Go back to the people you disappointed because they knew you. Go back to those who you caused affliction to and show them mercy. It's the same mandate when the Holy Spirit came upon us at Acts 1.8. He says, go be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Go back to Jerusalem where I was just murdered and you were fearful and you denied me. Go back and be my witnesses testimony. Go back to Judea, these great places of great influence. Go back to Samaria, where you were racist and you avoided them at all costs. Go show them mercy. Go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Some of you are fishermen, he said. You have no idea that you could go to the uttermost parts of the earth. The mandate for this man to share mercy is the mandate at Pentecost as well. Go back to the places where people you hurt, you were afraid of, You caused anger. You caused frustration. And talk about mercy. The tangible message of mercy. Tell them what the Lord has done. Then show them the results of a life changed. This is carrying his name well. 
years ago at football practice when I was a football coach, we were, we were uh, there's like 100 kids I was coaching, so we spread out in different groups. I was with one group. There was a young man on my team at the time. He was, um, how do I say it, really annoying. <laughs> um, Jesus loves all kids. I was trying. He just was um, antsy, he, and he, he liked to rile up everybody and get everybody else to be, you know, antsy with him. It just was really a tough kid to have on a team. Didn't really want to play. Was there for his dad, you know, in the story. So he was off to the side. as in a whole different section. He was, he was probably messing around, doing things he shouldn't have been doing, causing people, you know, throwing footballs at people, whatever, whatever he wanted to do. From across the field, I heard of one of my young coaches who had excellent voice projection, which means he was loud, yelling at this young man whose name was Stewie. And he was saying, Stewie, you need to stop. Oh, that's understood. Then he escalates. Stewie, you are worthless. There is nothing good about you. I don't even know why you're even here. It escalated. I walked not that slowly from where I was closer, and I looked at this young man who was a rascal, and the Lord said, Mercy. So I went over and I looked at Stewie, and I'm like, Buddy, I don't even know what you're doing right now, but don't believe the lie that coach just told you. You do have worth, you are important. Because I didn't want him to hear that in his head. You do, you're valuable. You're a great young man. I let that finish end. And then I said, Stewie, stop screwing around. You know, Jesus said, go and sin no more. This was my version. Stop, <laughs> stop screwing around. He's like, okay, coach. I was so mad at that other coach because he had caused this pain. About 30 minutes later, I started to feel like the older brother in the parable, I mean the prodigal son, like, wait, who deserves mercy? Who needs mercy here? You know who needs mercy there? That coach. And you're like, wait a minute. Mercy lets somebody off the hook. No, what mercy does is, I'm going to come engage with you, find out what's really come on, going on, and I'm going to come alongside you and see if there's something different we can do. That was really, really hard because everything in me was like, I'm going to lay into this guy. Because I'm the head coach and it's football and that's what we do, apparently. <laughs> After practice, I sat down and his name was Mike. And in my mind was going to be like, you don't do that. But it started with God's word saying, Mike, how's, how's everything going on at home? He's like, that's a weird question. <laughs> I go, well... I really do want to talk about how you just screamed at this young man and telling him it was worthless. But I'm guessing that came from somewhere. So let's, I want to find out what's going on there so that that doesn't happen again. In the coach's room that day, Mike broke down a little bit and talked to me about his all sorts of things. His marriage and trouble and all sorts of reasons he was on edge and it doesn't justify any of what he said. But that man deserved mercy too. He apologized to Stewie. 
oh, three weeks ago or so, I was at Safeway. Stewie's now in his mid-20s. Ran into him at the store. He's like, Coach, you'd be so proud of me. I own my own business. I'm like, sweet. I go, what do you do? He's like, well, something. I'm like, what do you do? Well, I sell legalized marijuana. And I'm like, well, at least... I'm like, he goes, is that what you thought I'd be doing? I'm like, no, I kind of thought you'd be selling illegal marijuana, but at least it's <laughs> legal. He was so excited that day. We hugged, and I don't share this just because it's cool in a message, but he's like, coach, I still remember. And I'm like, so do I, buddy. So do I. Mercy. Mercy starts revolutions. Mercy is what Jesus told the man to bring the truth to a place who's never heard him. So for each of us to carry his name well, who do you need to show mercy to? Who is the last person you think you need to show mercy to? We are called to bring mercy to both of those places. For some of you, it may start simply by receiving the mercy that Jesus has for you today. You may not even know what that means. But he's sitting next to you, puts his arm around you, and he's like, we're good. To some, he might be moving in you. Like, I can think every reason in this world why this person deserves no mercy, or at least the conversation that I need to have with them. But he does. Because there is no one too far from God's love that he can't draw near to him. You might be that messenger to Decapolis today. Let me close by simply reading this prayer from Colossians that Paul had for his people over you. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God's blessings be upon you.